me yet. It's a long, a long listen, but it continues to be just fucking mind blowing. Yeah. But yeah, it gets more and more mind blowing. Oh, cool. Deeper it goes down cool. the rabbit hole. I took hey, a break. There she oh, is. Hey. Good morning. Good morning. Hey. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yes, something you. weird happened because I knew we were meeting today. And it was actually good that you sent me the wrong link because I started working on a curriculum and it, the time got away from me. So, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, sorry about that. That happens. I mean, hey, I'm glad it, I'm glad it worked out. So the heads oh. up made it, you know, gave, made it work. Heads up. So, yeah, the universe is actually that's nice. Yes, that it is. That it is. How are you? Good. I have to make sure I don't have dog hair on me here. Oh, that's uh, well, there's one... no video recording, oh, so you can awesome. have as much dog oh, hair yeah, as you no like. Worries. This is just so we can see each other and communicate. <laughs> yeah, it's no, all, no, no, it's no, all audio. Not, no. Yeah, we had a friend who actually opted out of the video because she was so conscious of how she looked. I was like, we're not using it anyway. She's like, no, 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 seriously. <laughs> not even I have tape on my glasses. I don't want anybody to see me. Yeah, I like to see people, and I like to see, like, like, like I like the way you have your setup, Taran, because is that how you say your name, Taran? Taran. Taran, yeah. Taran, because like you're in a room, and I can see your those those mm-hmm. feathers are cool, and it's like you're actually in a place. So yeah, yes. and I'm a phonophobe. Like I don't use uh-huh. the phone. I don't have a smartphone, so like they're oh, okay. really much better for me. Mm. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. You still have a landline, right? <laughs> <laughs> I heard that in some of the talks. I was like, "That's awesome." No, I, I do. I, sh- I have to show you one thing before I get going. You'll love this. Yeah. I have one of these. Do you know what this is? Yeah. Oh, do you ever see this? The television series Doctor House. Oh, of course. That's oh my God. The phone he has. Yes. A banana phone. I have one of the originals. I love, love my banana phone. That's fantastic. It's very it's, nice. That's the precursor to what they used in the Matrix, right? The one yes. That... It makes this that's what I was out. thinking. I was like, it's the yellow pre version of the Matrix. <laughs> I mean, Dr. House had a black one, but the original was yellow because it was called a banana phone. Yeah, that's what I that's Still cool. works. Yeah, it works, but you, know, you can't get any apps or anything. It's not right. Well, that's all right. That's okay. That's all right. Um, so there are like a bazillion things that we would probably both love to talk to you about, and I um kind of just a little orientation for what we're kind of yeah. working with and thinking about in the context of the podcast. Um, so. In some respects, and I, I have a feeling this is something that is resonant with you, you know, we're really interested, at least in this space, of just having good conversation and allowing the kind of emergence of the intelligence that arises out of conversation, right? In, in this case, we're usually talking to three people, so we jokingly call it uh, a trialogue or a trialogos, right? Yeah. So that they're... And that opportunity to discover something that we wouldn't have maybe discovered otherwise because, you know, the three of us have never had a conversation together. Um, so we typically don't really have a plan. We're happy to talk about whatever. Um, you know, I know that often people want to talk to you about your deeper theoretical work, which I am super happy to talk to you about. But I have heard you say 
at least on more than one occasion that nobody ever wants to talk to you about horses. So if you want to have a conversation about horses, like we're down to talk about anything and everything. Okay. So yeah. Talk about theory. You know, what happens is I try to talk about actual concrete things. And then the last couple ones I've done, people just start asking meta questions. So, uh, so if you want to keep, I think, try to keep relevant that, you know, to your audience, that would be, that'd be good. I mean, (laughs) we're, we're still starting out. Like we don't have an audience. We have people that are excited that we're going to be releasing stuff soon, but Part two is that really, um, you know, we often talk about it as conversational jazz. So just kind of riffing on whatever is to use a Peter Lindbergh, most alive for folks at the moment. Um, You know, your work, I I encountered your work primarily through stuff that you did on the Stoa and the Hollow really was just fucking mind blowing um, in the best way and continues to be. I just Mm re-listened to it uh, recently to kind of like get my mind back in that groove. Not that we necessarily yeah. need to talk about those ideas, but, <clears throat> you know, for me, one of the things that was so powerful about it is that when you were releasing it originally last year, I had been unbeknownst, right? Because like, I didn't know that you were going to do that. I didn't know what the source material was, but I was like reading Donna J. Haraway and reading Vicki McCabe and like in this kind of, you know, sort of like intersectional space of examining process philosophy, mostly from a Taoist Mm -hmm. orientation, right? Like all these things were just organically coming together. And then you dropped this and I was just like, I mean, it was, it was a pretty psychedelic experience, quite frankly, to have all of that come together in the way that it did. So I'm just really excited that we have the opportunity to chat with you. And really that's all to kind of lay a little bit of, of foundational context for kind of, yeah. Where I'm at, I don't know, Lucas, what you might want to add to that. Well, I'm, I mean, um, I'm joking, but kind of true that I'm sort of taking my post, my doctoral program in Terran studies and just whatever he's finding really interesting. And the moment he's like, oh, did you check this out? I'm like, no, I haven't heard of that. And then I listened yeah. to him like mind blown. And you were one of you were on our list. Um, and so I, I too just finished the hollow series and I had to listen to it a couple of times cause I'm, I'm not in as, as, um, fluent in the jargon. So when you say, you know, you want to keep it grounded and, and based in, re- in mm-hmm. reality, that's where it resonates with me because, you know, I think I had not qu- similar, uh, lifestyle when I grew up as to what you're living now you know, really out in the earth and the world and mm-hmm. seeing things happen in nature. And um, so my, my understanding is very experiential and I, I'm starting to develop the language now, which is interesting. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's funny to listen to these like very meta conversations and using this very, in, uh, you know, doctoral level uh, vocabulary. And I'm like, oh yeah, that just means this felt sensation. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm with you. You know? Yeah, and I think that's a big reason why I spent so much time trying to pair it with visuals because there's like a real felt sense. And then I would throw up like quotes from Chandler or Haraway that are jargon laden. And, um, you know, that's kind of like a strange attractor to to um, bring people more into metacognitive awareness. I mean, you know, it's interesting because... Um, what was I? What am I trying to do with things like 
the hollow. I mean, it was highly stylized. It was a it, kind of like an art performance piece. Um, but what's very interesting, and I think this pertains to <clears throat> both of you also, because it's such a treat now to listen to you um, have this conversation with you, is that I teach a, a course in consciousness studies and transpersonal psychology. And I've been at it for a little over 12 years. And 12 years ago, without a doubt, you could predict the students came in. They were mostly um, uh, early divorced women who hung out at Kripalo and Omega and did a lot of workshops and were re relatively wealthy did a lot of these, had the money and the resources to do all these workshops. And um, we started developing the course uh, more toward integral theory. I mean, this is how I was invited into the course. And then soon it became like the very first class you would teach Ken Wilber's developmental psychology, integral psychology. And most people had read something of Wilber and they were in that community. But the more we we t I teach the course in the in the more experimental we get every year. Like my course this year is there's much more diversity, but the depth of what their understanding is like I mean like I don't want I don't mean this as a pejorative. Like someone like you, Lucas, who's like an ordinary guy, could mm -hmm. get the hollow. There's something really happening. There's a quickening happening. And so, and it's not like you, because you've read all the books or, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so my course this year, the students are very savvy across many disciplines and they work for like the Discovery Channel and, and have real day jobs and some of them are nurses and stuff. But what I think is happening and where I think you know, I'm like everyone else. I ask the question of myself, like, what are you doing? How do you fit in this space? Like, you know, it's an interesting question. And I think that I've always had from the very beginning, the first article I wrote for Integral Review, uh, uh, giving an alternative, a process perspective to Wilbur's th theory is that like the change we're looking for is much more radical than most people are talking about. Now, it doesn't mean we don't need to practice these other things like circling or slow dialogue or this is, but I always think that, that we're really kind of like monkeys wondering what it will be like in, you know, when we're humans, it's like that radical. And so, in the hollow, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, the sex sense making space is interesting. And we need to do that work. I'm not saying that we don't need to do that work. But mm -hmm. my work is to say, but the whole premise really is somewhat limiting, isn't it? If we look at it from yeah. this perspective. So don't mean to say, because when we enter the hollow, and that's why I stylized it. It's got a trope at the beginning. You know, we're both putting dispatches in the present and we're in the future reading them. And, you know, so... I stylize it because I don't want people to think, oh, this is the perspective that trumps all other perspectives. But it's a perspective that puts the other ones in kind of a more, the other ones move more gracefully rather than being like a container that this is it. And I think that this is something you mentioned, the stoa, that, 
that Peter's been able to do really well because a lot of people will show up, myself included, like if I'm teaching a module on speculative philosophy and people are asking me questions, I have to remind them, I'm answering like a speculative philosopher. If I'm teaching like Taoism, they'll say, but last week you said this. And I'm like, but like, I'm, you know, I'm the Taoist today, you know? So, and so there's still, you have people coming up in many, in many cases being featured as experts. I'm not saying experts and again, in a pejorative sense, but they have an expertise and they've, they've researched and they're well-rounded in something. And yet he has the ability to like not only feature that person because it's beautiful what they're doing, but it doesn't cap thought. It's not like, okay, this is what we have to do. You know, this is what this person's doing. And so uh, then the question has become comes is where are you thinking from if you're thinking with all of these, right? If you're not thinking yeah. – as Daniel Schmattenberger, or thinking as John Brevecki, or thinking as Bonnie Roy, you're thinking with them, then you have this really interesting, somewhat unanswerable question of where are you thinking from? And that's right. your metacognitive view or your vantage point that Daniel Brown, once people start to participate with knowledge and information in all this wonderful creativity of human cognition and practice from this vantage point, then I think we have like a completely different, we've basically modified collective intelligence in mm -hmm. and accelerated it beyond the way it works right now. Right. So, um, um, I don't know if that wasn't a good enough introduction, but, but I, I just want to reflect back that there's something that's coming at me as I'm always having to feel like, wow, I have to keep going, you know, like, like the energy people are starving for um, something further along, you know? Um, yeah. And it's, I really, no, and it's no, not like ahead, I please. have that something further along. I'm allowing it to, to move me, you know, and it's just like a, when I teach, uh, used to teach a lot of stallion training and uh, in, in horses, you have this phrase overfaced. Like a lot of times people will get, especially women like me, you'll go out, oh, now I want a stallion and you get a stallion and he's a remarkable stallion, which means he needs tremendous amount of leadership. And when you go and get a stallion, if you have good friends around you, they say you have to be prepared because if you're overfaced, you need to find someone else for the stallion because you'll end up getting like in a fighting or competition with your stallion and you're not going to win. You're going to get hurt in the stallion or you put way too much control and, you know, abusive technology on them. And, and so what you realize is like, and this is true also in Qigong, when you're working with students or you are a student, is that, you know, your job is to shape the stallion's character, but he's always shaping your leadership. And what you try to do is when 
when that interface is too close, instead of pushing down the stallion, you have to lift up your leadership. And this is, I think, really problematic in terms of all our education, because when kids are like, they have all this energy and it's, it's coming at you, you like, you drug it or you push it down or you contain it or you put right. them in a container. And this is, this is de-evolutionary. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love how you're speaking to the space that are, that arises or that is discovered as we enter into this um, engagement in a in a trans paradigmatic fashion with all these different ways of thinking. And I think that one of the things that's been so exciting for me in the past, like you know, so my pandemic year was largely spent in reconnecting to theoretical work um, because as somebody who's been mostly focused on Chinese medical practice and movement and various kinds of spiritual inquiry, I took a really long pause from looking at theory. And so when I had all of this time, I got to like, just sort of organically start to reconnect to these things. And since there had been such, um, so much shifting in my own embodied experience of like, what does it mean to be human? And what is consciousness over the years since the last time I engaged with theory, the, the thing that I kept finding was that there was this place that was in, you know, it, itself in process and very dynamic that kept shifting as I would start to relate to these different, you know, ways of understanding, some of which were very familiar on some level, either cognitively or in, in my embodied experience, and some were like super radically, you know, new. Um, so that that question, right, of where am I thinking from, I think one of the things that's uh, so invigorating about it, right, is that it in and of itself is processual mm -hmm. and dynamic. And that the, one of the things I've really been appreciating so much about your work is the way that it, it really opens up, right, this, let me, let me take that back a step and say something that I, I also don't mean to be pejorative, but often I find even in some of the most um, compelling modeling and like most beautiful uh, metacognitive thinking that I have been exposed to that I still feel like there's this implicit either mm -hmm. orness in it, right? There's still this kind of like relationship to reality as a set of objects, you know, in space that can be apprehended and acted upon. And so really liberating ourselves from that and, and leaning, you know, into the mystery of what is process and both and not just thinking but relating uh feel look and show up like i i just think that that oh. that's like the that's the most exciting edge to me right um both in theoretical work and then also in the work of life right in the play of life in the practice of medicine and homeschooling my kid right this is the space where you know somehow that can become alive in a way that's that's not about my ideas right that i'm i'm still not exactly clear what the overfacing means like is that where there's not a the intensity of the different forces is like the stallion overpowers in some way it's it's kind of like the, the student or... becomes the master so the master has to know when to mm. let go and for like and so right. with horses it's like if you get scared or um you're if you're nervous you don't have a good idea how to put this this stallion back into curiosity and and instead you're using oh, yeah. threat or 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 just nervousness i mean it, it, when you're working with a young stallion the idea is like 
to have like the the archetype of the stallion is there for a reason. Like they have a lot of testosterone. It comes in fast. They can't even stand their own bodies. Literally, they get to a phase mm. where at first they're like babies and they're cute, and then the testosterone comes. And of course, unless you I had two two cult two babies born here, but unless you want babies every day, you're the person the stallion interacts with. So there's a lot of really high intense kind of like, it's not like one-upmanship. We use these words that sound like competition. The stallion just has a lot of energy. And the idea is the mistake people make is to like walk around gingerly and keep the stallion calm because you're just building a bigger bomb. So what you do is you like engage and really active, like play in a big paddock and you push and push and you kind of scare him. And it's funny to be scared and he goes crazy. Mm. Mm. It's just all mm. testosterone or whatever you want to call it. I mean, mares are like this too, but no way. Like, so basically right. his mm. body is moving blind, which means like, if mm. you don't know what to do with your body uh, or if you take any kind of like, I, I've had young men, like when it gets like that, when they're training their, their stallion, instead of being like soft and yin, like they go like this with their shoulders and the stallion says, Oh, I know what that uh, is. That's the game where you like smash into people <laughs> and it's, and he wants to play that game, but of course you can't play that right. game with a stallion. So you have to learn like, what else can I do with this energy? And then the stallion learns that then you transform it and then he he look at you and he'll nicker and come down, be the little boy again. And young men are like this too. They're like half child and half mm. like, you know, military savages or something. And then right. the stallion learns that no matter how big he gets, he can always come back down, right? And so the mm. idea is to teach that muscle that way. And I think this is true for all what we would call emotions or when, like, when you're really sad. You know, the idea is not to get sad. It's to really cry and really grieve and because you can always come back to, to center and so when you're overfaced, you just there's just too much going on. You don't have enough skill. You don't have enough self presence. Uh-huh. Uh, you have to have like in qigong if you're doing some of the martial arts. Uh, you have to be very present. You can't be distracted, but you can't have fear, and fear doesn't work because right. you. You end up getting hurt. So that's what's called overfacing. You you can get a horse that asks too much of you. You can't. And, and children are like mm-hmm. this. I mean, there's some uh, – there are – when you're first dating, there are men that women want to be with, and I'm sure it's the same with uh, women that men want to be with, and you're really attracted to them. But you're like, no way am I going – Go in there because you'll just be overfaced. Right. And so it has to do yeah. a lot with hormones and what the body, you know, bodies in space. You put bodies in space and it's going to, it's like putting plutonium in one of those nuclear reactors, you know. So that's what being overfaced yeah. is. You can be attracted to certain people and you just know, you know, like. 
this will not, not end, well. end well. I can play this game once, and then when the stallion gives me the, you know, the smashing game, like I, I get one chance at playing that, yeah. and I never win. Yeah, you know, you could see. Um, I don't know if we want to bring up uh, some hot topics, but you mm-hmm. can watch some Jordan Peterson uh, clips and see that his relationship to a lot of these postmodern people and these postmodern women, he's basically overfaced. And it's not because of what they're saying. Like what they're right. saying is ridiculous. That's the analysis that people don't like, you know, they're saying, you know, they're chanting like one, two, three, we want to be, you know, whatever. It's the right. energy that he's overfaced with it. And yeah. he even said, you know, he said, I can, I can have a argument with a man. Cause it's always like when it get, it's going to go there, there's always like this in the background that we're going to, someone's going to get punched, you know? And he's like, but I don't know. I don't know how to argument with a hysterical, hysterical woman. And that's an, that's a power. That's a power. That's mm-hmm. not, you know, that's this isn't very interesting, like reframe from a Taoist, right? This is a Taoist perspective because it's and so sure. I will tell people like when you're in those situations, don't pay attention to the words. The words, it's all this, right. it's all a yeah, it's all a dance of bodies in space. That's really um would be interesting analysis to do. Yeah, that's super interesting because um you know one of the things Lucas and I met studying with this gentleman whose name is Ed Neal, who's a teacher of classical Chinese medicine um, from a particular orientation to the Neijing. And so he looks a lot, especially in the beginning of your work with him, at cosmological patterning and how that shows up um, in the Neijing. And so his contention is that the the primary teaching of the Neijing is that the universe is breath motion. So that there is, and you see this in the Tao Te Ching and in the Xuanza too, but um, you know, so we have this expansion, this yang expansion, and then this consolidation back towards a root, right? And so that, you know, chi in this contextualization and model is the fabric of space-time that that yang yin expansion consolidation pattern is expressed on. And so we look at the way these kinds of fundamental patterns express in a variety of ways. And so it's just, you know, lovely to hear how you are viewing this both in terms of the relationship of what's going on with overfacing and the stallion, with working with kids, right? With the emotional pulsation, with this dynamic and Jordan Peterson and these feminist <laughs> postmodernist women. Like it's it's, you know, one of one of the inspirations also for these conversations that we're having came from um, sitting with the fact that Chinese medicine, at least in the way that uh, it's been taught to me, is this like er complex systems science, right? That um, as opposed to being focused on uh, adaptive systems, right, is definitely focused on this way that more in the potential state model that you use and more in like this kind of harmonic um, sensible responsiveness, right? That the innate intelligence of all these I'm losing my language to like in in terms of my own uh, experience of the way that the natural world and these smaller things that we separate out as nodes from the natural world, really, which are, of course, just connected, you know, basically to the whole universe, come into this focalization and then re-expansion pattern, which, of course, itself is also this yang Mm -hmm. yin dynamic. So 
you know, Chinese medicine in many respects, I feel like is not really represented in terms of this orientation that I'm talking about, um, or even a lot of Taoism in these kind of, you know, meta conversations. And so I was perceiving this lack and wondering in myself as somebody who's spent a fair amount of time studying that, like, how do we, how do we start a conversation that includes not to bring it all into my orientation, but how do we bring this other set of tools and understandings into this conversation, especially because there's this real deep embodiment, right? That is, is so much a part of the study and practice of, of Chinese medicine and philosophy. Um, so in any case, that's, that's one of the things that is guiding and sort of motivating these conversations is, is looking for how that intersectionality expresses. Yeah. I mean, You had used a phrase earlier, I'm not going to get it right, but something about, you know, it's not either or, it's both and, but this is, this is my personality, I guess. There's just, it it frustrates me because there's so many popular courses on Taoism, let's say, or Buddhism, and, you know, this whole notion of Western Buddhism and um, how it's been appropriated back into the East. And um, from my perspective, it's not that they just get things wrong. It's in the wrong direction and it's really a disservice to people. And I'll give you an example. There's a lot of, you know, circling practices and uh, group practices and the whole idea is to, you know, a lot of the conversation is around getting in, into my body. And so I had a conversation with someone who's been doing a lot of these practices and young man, and he said, you know, this is really hard work. I'm really paying attention to getting in my body. And, and I said, well, what do you mean? And he's like, well, you know, because it's really scary because when you once you start to turn in, And he was talking about what was in there was intergenerational trauma. And I said, that's not getting into your body. Getting into your body is like you have a stomach ache or your shoulder hurts or do you feel contracted here? Or all of a sudden, wow, I feel like my head is just, it's like a breath. Like that's your body. You're getting into your thoughts. So like, this fundamental distinction between what is a body sensation and what is a thought is already in the wrong direction in most of this work. So I, I, you know, I did a futurist thinker and it was the same thing. They were talking about getting embodied and then going in and, and experiencing the shadow. And I said, well, I would just say, what's, what, what, if you didn't have the concept of shadow, what would you be experiencing right now? And so a lot of these psychotechnologies, a lot of these teachings are already poisoned with fundamental, let's say, metaphysical categories that are in error, right? And so mm-hmm. um, um, it takes a long time for people to separate because there's very subtle thoughts too there and so this one's not that subtle but in this case i was talking about um and so the you know i'm the the person i was talking with was sincere and they were talking about their 
maternal grandfather was uh, an alcoholic and how this affected the growth, you know, the childhood of the mother. And, and I said, you know, when you understand individuation, right, it's really hard to individuate from your parents. Not everybody does. And most people do it around 50, 40 to 50. It's not, it's not uncommon for that to take a long time. But in the process of individuation, there's always something that happens. You start to say, well, my mother was like this because her father was like this and I'm like this because it doesn't matter. So your grandfather drank too much. You could have said my mother's father worked too much. He was never home. You could say, oh, they were rich. They never had to face reality. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be anything, but it's always something. So this is another critique I have because there's two, look, growing up as a human has a lot of precarity. Existentially, the way we grow Mm -hmm. has to do with going through these stages of precarity. But that's not all trauma. But then half the work people are doing to individuate is reinforcing uh, this notion of trauma. And it's like, Mm -hmm. there's real trauma. Don't get me wrong. But so like in my course, I have a lot of things where like everything that people think of gets twisted around because I think there's fundamental confusion in these mm-hmm. practices, you know. And and so, yeah, if you get me going, I'm, I'm actually a pretty strong critic in many cases. It's not it's not always appropriate in every forum, but um, it, it does. And then I let it go, you know, I mean, there's many different ways to spend your time and, and uh, yeah, so, but there is, a, there is, I think, a need for it to settle into some distinctions about some of these fundamental, fundamental properties or protocols or, or codes and I think Taoism and Chinese medicine does a good job of it. You know, nothing is static. Nothing is, uh, you know, there are no trump cards in the, in the, in the, what is it called? Bagua, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. everything moves into something else. Yeah. And there's creative cycles and there's mm-hmm. protective cycles. And, and I'm just going to end one with one more comment because, even the notion, and I'm not saying I think you understand this, but even the notion of like there's the in breath and the out breath, there's the expansion and contraction. Uh, most people get that, but what's on the other side of the equ- equation? When I breathe in, right? When I breathe in, that's from <clears throat> when I breathe in. That feels like an expansion, but it's a contraction of the universe. And mm-hmm. when I breathe out, you know, so. So the the other side of it still keeps it whole. Right. You know, there's never there's never a unit of analysis that is dualistic, right? right. So um, which of course is a tragedy of Taoism because it signifies the ultimate dualistic of the polarity of the universe. And this is a, another misunderstanding. Yeah, I think I think that's a really intense misunderstanding, right? Because as you're speaking to that, the other thing that people don't typically realize is that it's yin within yang, yang within yin, iterated in both sort of apparent directionalities, and that it's at the very least three-dimensional, if not potentially 
more dimensional than that, right? So like that yeah. static image of the Tai Chi 2, <clears throat> it's supposed to be not just in movement up and down, but right in movement in all the ways. And so if you're going to, you know, people like meditate on this, this flat, you know, picture. And I'm like, if you're going to meditate on that, you need to be meditating on, you know, this dance that is like, you don't have enough senses to perceive all of the ways in which this is in movement or yeah. I don't, um, you know, I, I, I seek to approximate that, yeah. right? but at the same time, it's like, it's, it's totally, you know, the cognitive mind, at least I don't think can hold that. I think it's useful to try, right. To, to keep, stretching the cognitive capacity mm -hmm. to be able to hold more and more of it and to recognize that like you ain't gonna get there and so you know a really strong healthy dose of humility in the presence of these kinds of explorations is i think really important um yeah and i think that's a point because i think the the la the loss of movement and the the expectation of or the presentation of polarity is really what the what the mind does right because mm -hmm. it has to i had to laugh i was reading something this morning about um they discovered that the um it could be a muon or something one of the fundamental particles that has spin in negative charge it's an, like an electron but mm -hmm. it's like 400 times heavier right. didn't behave the way they thought it would so yeah. now they're looking for more particles underneath particles right. and this is um when i teach my course the very first introduction i say something quite radical and i say um <clears throat> that we were there's a lot of what we teach in consciousness studies is part of this east-west fusion but even the East-West fusion is within the Indo-European language family. So it has this subject-object mm -hmm. kind of expression, it, the up and down, what's higher and lower. This is, But so outside of that, you have uh, – this could be a story, but it seems to be that there are some cultures, indigenous cultures primarily and Tibetan cultures – um, that have just verb language, like the Navajo language is, mm -hmm. is verb, verb language, and it works differently. And so um, I say, so just even all this stuff we're going to talk about that's like East-West fusion, it doesn't include this whole other spirituality that's right. very hard to get. And the way I... Um, give people an, ex an experience of that, as I say. So, for example, it has to do with what's process or movement mm -hmm. and what is concrete or matter, right? right? And all the traditions over here. So if I say to these two, a philosopher on each side, Indo-European, these Tibetan uh, pro process uh, cultures, if you say, imagine three glasses of water, Right. They both will agree as a metaphor. They both will agree that the glasses are the structure and the water's the process. But in the Indo-European language family, we envision three glasses of water on a table. And over here, they envision three glasses submerged in water. Mm. Right. So over here. Because that's our fundamental metaphysics, the view from which we're coming, yep. we have this 
nagging question. How do things touch? So we have things like storehouse consciousness, morphogenic fields, dark matter. This, these, all of science, all of spirituality, all of religion over here has set itself up with a pickle because it set itself fundamentally separating process and, re- and structure and wondering how things can touch because we know they do. So I say all the sciences, everything, all the school, everything over here, Buddhist scholastics, is a consequence of the pickle we've set up, the constraint we've made on thought. Yep. And over here, there is no, you know, it's like, well, the glasses are just different densities of process. There's an asymmetry in process, and of course, things touch, and they and they don't actually have too many questions they're trying to answer. They're quite like the Taoist, very practical, um, um, get on with life. What you see is what you get. And so they haven't created these huge canons of scholastics and philosophy. They, they create songs, right? Songs of delight and wonder. And um, so that's another kind of interesting way to totally cut, cut the cheese, right? Yeah, one of the things that I frequently say to new patients and will remind patients that I've been hanging out with for some time, you know, they'll want to know, like, what's wrong? What is it? Like, if I just knew what it was, right? Like, if I could get an MRI and they could tell me <laughs> what it is, then I could fix it. I'm like, so, you know, we'll go into how, like, there is no real correlation between what you get and various kinds of imaging and how your experience is and the people that look like they shouldn't be able to walk or, like, running marathons and feel great and people that look great feel terrible and everything in between, right? I was like, but fundamentally from the orientation of Chinese medicine, the the challenge with that is that there aren't any things, right? And and what your your understanding of the body is that it's a set of things <clears throat> and the things do other things and they act on things, right? And I'm like, but that's not our orientation. We're looking at relationship and we're looking at relationship in a dynamic And what that means in this context is that it's ever-changing. So you are not the same person in this moment as you are in the next. You're not the same person as the other person that has the same named diagnosis that brought you in to see me. And so I, you know, as soon as we step into this mode where we're thinking of things, Mm -hmm. we've left the mind of this medicine, right? And we're doing something else. I'm not saying, you know, that that something else is inherently problematic, I mean, I do kind of think it is inherently problematic for healing, but, you know, it's like it has its place, of course, right? Like, you know, the old, if I get hit by a car, please take me to the ER. You know, there's there's truth in that unless my teacher Tom Bizio is around and then take me to see him. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, what we can offer, right, is we can offer this relationality. And so then it gets really interesting because it's like, well, people come to see a physician because they have problems that they want to be fixed, Right. But fixing problems, as you spoke to very eloquently in the hollow, is within this other set of metaphysical primes that actually doesn't like isn't part of this. So how do we especially, you know, as somebody who grew up speaking an Indo-European language and even in learning other language, learned other Indo-European languages? How do I continue to, um, you know, decondition? Right. And enter more deeply into this this possibility space of like, what is it like to to become, you know, a person who 
is more oriented towards these relational processual dynamics. And what does that look like in the practice of medicine? In, you know, again, in homeschooling my kid, like in interacting with my friends. And I don't know the answer to that, right? But that's the question that I keep holding and the process that I, I keep seeking to engage in because what I find is that the less I hold on to the idea of fixing things, you know, the more there is change that seems to, even if it's not linear, move in a direction where people feel better, right? Where they have their capacity seems to increase in such a way that they are able to live a life that is ultimately less painful, more joyful, you know, they're more present. So right. I'm going to like, you know, I don't know that we want to get into a progress regress, but if we were, I would call that progress even if I recognize that progress is a problematic way of framing it, yeah. but it's the direction that I seek to move in. And it seems to be the direction that most people that come seeking support want to be moving in. Right. I don't know if that's very coherent. Um, and there's not yeah. really a question in there. It's more just a reflection of kind of, you know, how we're moving in this conversation and what it brings up for me. I think there's tremendous challenge at the, that level. Um <clears throat> So I was going to ask you, like, with someone with that amount of wisdom, you know, how do you survive the politics around COVID? I mean, this stuff can drive, can drive you crazy, right? And, um, and yet, when you find yourself in that space, you have to, you know, I have a phrase, and yet the Tao is not broken. Right. Right. So even that, that I'm yeah. looking at, I have to come behind myself and say, and yet the Tao is not broken, right? So, so, so then that puts me in a space where I think harder, or I, or I try to get more clear on what is actually the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't always get there, but I at least I don't start down the rabbit hole. Is like, why are people like this? And right. and blah 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 blah. I mean, I could easily let my energy surge in that way because of this disparity between what I, you know, seems so clear to me and the way civilization or our country is going. Okay. So it's always that um, it's, it's actually a very interesting question for many people in this game of trying to improve the human species, let's say, or the planet or the human species time on the planet. And that is, it's like, it's a version of, you know, I grew up when the ecological movement was getting a lot of traction and the environmentalists, the ecologists had a problem because they would constantly say, well, humans are just nature. And on the other hand, they would say, Humans are like cancer and a plague upon the earth. And I'm so nature is a cancer on it. You're like, and so I went through this phase where I had this question, like, well, what are people for? Because, and, and I know that sounds instrumental, but in this context, it was because ecologists started to see that everything they thought was bad had a purpose, you know, like, um, um, sickle cell anemia, was gave you uh, protection against malaria in the tropics and the beavers destroyed things, but they made the meadows. And, and, and we had this beautiful way of seeing the wolves don't kill the elk. 
they provide the conditions for which the elves flourish. But they didn't have a story for humans. Right. Right? So this is um, what I call, um, you know, this is, this, this, I don't think it's true so much in, in indigenous cultures, because they do have stories for humans and how the system, the natural system can't, you know, we're, we have our place in it too. But I think that for us, again, this is the Indo-European language family. And we think of Christianity in the West as having this notion of original sin, right? So, but, whoops. Oh, Taryn, where'd he go? What a terrible time to kick him off, though. That was... <laughs> Yeah, no, I can, I can tell my story because it has an ending. Okay. Hey. Hey, we're back. <laughs> we're back. We had to take a commercial break. We're back. Thank you, Taryn, for yeah. plugging whatever that was that we're we on. Take the Wi-Fi router tapping out break, yeah, apparently. Exactly. So. Yeah. So let me just finish this story. So I'm talking about how, you know, what are people for? And mm. we had this story in and in the in the West, we the environmentalists didn't have a story about the human species. And so um, uh, <laughs> it has a punchline, and I can't remember the punchline. You were talking about Christianity and oh, original yes, sin. The original sin. And so I think it has to do with something, because I'm always looking at like these source code protocols, and so – so you can say, well, like we are, we are embedded in the in the Western imagination and the Abrahamic faith, which of course also in the Indo-European is like, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and I'll get to that. But in the in Christianity and the Abrahamic, you know, we we have original sin, anything that uh, goes to the Old Testament, and so like that's a problem. Like it's it's one of the reasons why we can't see ourselves as part of the dynamic wonderful part of reality but in buddhism they have original sin too and it's it's being born human right Mm -hmm. because it's not a you know so uh that's a problem i mean maybe maybe we are the way we are because and i remember once as a kid i was a, a raised catholic and i was into a catholic grammar school and the priest said you know he said People aren't sinners because they're sin. They sin. They're si- they sin because they're sinners. Like you're born a sinner. And so uh, this notion of the Tao is not broken, I think, is a really beautiful story, you can say. Uh, mm-hmm. or it could be a metaphysical <clears throat> axiom to inhabit. Because if you say, and yet it's not broken, then a lot of space opens up for further exploration. You may not get there. Um, but I think it's it's an interesting it's very Taoist, right? Mm-hmm. It's very Taoist mm-hmm. and and I know I could talk forever, but I once went to on my 40th birthday, I went to a weekend workshop with John Milton, mm-hmm. Way of Nature, and he was talking about Buddhism, you know, he's like a polymath, he's a Buddhist and bone person and Taoism and nature and and something clicked for me because I, I was a Taoist, but I started teaching consciousness studies and was learning more and more about Western Buddhism and mindfulness. 
and I finally got it because he was telling the story about Buddha, you know, Buddha came down from the castle and then he started studying people. So he came up with the first noble truth, you know, suffering. Whereas the Taoists study animals and plants and, and they think that the purpose of life is happiness, right? So mm-hmm. there you go. Like mm-hmm. there's a nice there's a nice historical uh precedent between those two traditions. Totally. And I think when you look at the you know I appreciate that for many, many people in the West, mindfulness practices as they're currently being taught have been instrumental in helping them to live a more fulfilled life. And I have a a really robust critique of those practices because I feel like they are a little bit um, in line with what you were saying about these thoughts in the body, my shadow, my intergenerational trauma. It's like there's this kind of myopic fixation on minutiae which I think is a useful practice if you don't have the capacity to pay attention to that minutia. It's really good, but I feel like it's like, you know, in the Tibetan traditions, shamatha vipassana, right? Like you don't just focus on the minutia of what it feels like for your breath to wind through your sinuses. Like, yeah, sure, that can bring you into the present moment. But at the same time, somewhere, you know, again, back to our expansion, consolidation, right? We got to open that up into like a more sort of view, Dzogchen, Bun, however you want to frame it. Like, you know, this kind of like bigger relationship to experience, which is joyful, right? In its spaciousness and in its, you know, luminosity and in its, you know, your, the, the relationality of like, okay, I am able to experience this instantiated self as part of this incredibly rich beautiful system of nature or systems of nature right and so you know i uh i also have those those challenging ways that i butt up against what seems to be common wisdom right in spiritual circles and practice circles and like you know ways to deal with trauma where i'm like yeah but if we just focus on all this stuff and hold it in a tight fist Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a little bit like Alcoholics Anonymous for me where I'm like, great, you're not drinking. That is awesome. But now not only are you identified Mm -hmm. with an idea of self, you're identified with an idea of destructive behavior as self Mm -hmm. and that you can never be anything other than this process Mm -hmm. that you're calling addiction and you are that. I'm like, "Mm, it's original sin doctrine all over again, right? I mean, where is the liberative potential in not identifying yourself with any behavior, but acknowledging that those behaviors have been arising and that, you know, okay, I, I might want to make different choices, but it's not because I am yeah. that. Well, that's right? the word, liberate, right? I mean, I think when critiquing or evaluating these things, we, we have to uh, acknowledge the context we're coming from. So yes, these practices, especially in their easy to adopt popular stages will change behavior. And perhaps that's behavior, perhaps that's good. Um, If that's what we want to do is change behavior. Um, But I'm not sure that, you know, they don't succeed in liberating uh, the self. And that's a, that's a, and then we're not sure that liberating the self improves society in the context of evaluating what's good for society. That's not, that's not clear. You know, the, the, the shamans were not allowed to live in the village and to, 
not, you know, and there's a reason why they all in went into caves, right? There, there, there's right. a, there's a question. I mean, well, I'm not sure those are mutually compatible, liberating selves and improving society in the way we understand civilization and modern norms and stuff like that, that we agree upon. I, I agree upon them too. Yeah. Um, so that's an interesting question, but, one of the things, you know, I like the fact that we're trying to incorporate neuroscience is uh, is very exciting. Neuroscience, cognitive, uh, embodied cognition in neuroscience is very exciting right now. I mean, years ago, I got a National Science Foundation grant out of college to work in neurophysiology with Kandel, who, you know, is mm-hmm. like the grant... And, th- and so that was already, I was too philosophical for the questions that they were having, but um, we're living exciting times because there's a lot of practitioners that are neuroscientists. Mm-hmm. But what's funny, I mean, maybe I can debut my Taoist uh, critique of Buddhism. Please and do it. So like in, in Taoism, you know, from your waist down, that's all your yin channels. Right. And so it's like, okay, well, what you guys do is first you sit in the lowest lotus position, you cut off all your yin channels. So it's our course, you know, like this has this has repercussions. And I'm reading this great book. If you read Guy Claxton, Intelligence in the Flesh or this guy, Buzaski, The Brain from the Inside Out, you know, though. When we think of complex things, there are micro actions in our thighs and in our ankles and we mm-hmm. we we have these hugely complex spindle fibers that in our whole bodies that's where cognition is held and so mm-hmm. this is contemporary science is is coming up and validating like this Taoist critique of buddhism right so that's that's mm-hmm. that's one thing and then there are interesting questions like Vipassana, the whole journey through the yanas, that's very interesting. But it's it's sold as if you're getting closer to God, right? Mm-hmm. And um, from a neuroscientist viewpoint, it's actually downward path, right? Experiences. Right. So experience has a lot going on and what happens if i keep subtracting subtracting and subtracting well this is kind of interesting because you get to see some parameters around what experience is composed of mm-hmm. but there are some fundamental um they're not they're not complex but they're very significant critiques of the interpretation one is that you're getting closer to god the other thing is that okay if that it doesn't have that high quality you're getting closer to your original nature now this is very problematic because for example that if i if i have a fully formed body you can take my liver out and put another liver in. You can take my arms and replace them. You can take my heart out and put another liver in. It doesn't mean that's how this body is constructed. And in fact, if you look at embryology, it's a mind fuck. Like the cells do this mm-hmm. and then they go here. and yep. Right? So it's not true that the downward deconstruction of experience gives you any insight into how experience arises organically it's not true 
Okay, that's a huge uh, mistake. That's one mistake. And the second, there's two other mistakes. The second mistake, or the third and fourth, is that experience not only uh, its embryogenesis um, can't be dis- deconstructed that way, but you know, experience is a moment-to-moment arising, and it arises through holistic participation. Right. So so even with the world and the breath and, the, you know, and so if I'm doing Vipassana and I first cut off my yin channels and then I cut off uh, my cicadic, it, you know, perception requires cicadic rhythm. And I cut off that. This is a highly stylized experiment about what it is to be a human. And so I continue to remove the part, the, the relationships and the participation that makes human experience, right? Mm-hmm. Until I get somewhere. And so, so here's my joke. I say it's very similar to trying to figure out what is uh, the experience of jumping in a frog, right? But it's too complex. So first I remove one leg. Then I move the next leg, and then I move the next leg. And finally, when I get to remove the last leg, I say, frog is empty of jumping. (laughs) Now, it sounds like a harsh critique, but it's actually true because experience is a holistic participation. So if you remove all the relationships, then all experience is empty. This is a hot – this is a problem. This is highly problematic. Mm. And then the last critique is, if you think of Vipassana, they are not actually starting with experience. That's what they're saying. They're start, they, the actual target of observation are objects in the mind, phenomenon in the mind. Mm-hmm. And of course you're going right. to find out they're empty because yeah. you start with phenomena in the mind. So these are, I think, critiques that, People, if they're honest, can understand. And um, I don't think they devastate Vipassana. I don't think they devastate the practice. I think they put it on really good grounding. And it's and and we can we can learn and translate that into communities of practice. I think that are liberating. That's the difference. Different uh, different evaluative criteria. Yeah. Uh, And the Vipassana orientation that you're talking about is more like the insight meditation kind of Vipassana, or are you thinking more in uh, a classical Tibetan sense? Uh, Insight uh, through the yanas, right? Because you're basically basically rearranging the relationship between the body and the nervous system, and you're subtracting. It's a subtractive. It's a subtractive. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I think that's my first time I publicly <laughs> said something that, that radical. Um, uh, I mean, I think this piece that you're speaking to about um, the observation of objects within the mind, right, is one of the things that has really, you know, the, the first times that I heard that teaching and started to actually like witness phenomenon arising in my own consciousness as objects, it was really powerful. And then as I kind of explored that more, and as I started to um, investigate process and relational dynamics more, I was like, wait a minute, right? I'm 
creating an idea that these things that I'm perceiving in my mind, Mm -hmm. on the one hand, yes, they're empty. On the other hand, I'm saying they're objects, right? Which in and of itself strikes me as as a particularly problematic kind of relationship to these particular phenomenon that are arising, right? Because again, we're back into the Indo-European subject, object, subject, predicate, external forces acting on things. I'm like, is this the model that I want to make? for what's happening inside of my experience? I don't know that it is. Well, I think what Taryn said was very highly metacognitive observation. And 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 to be and to be fair to the audience, you know, all these other interventions and therapies and modalities have their time and place. We're digging really Absolutely. deep here. Um, and you can work with it's all stuff material you have to work with, but it's it's the it's so what you said is perfect. A lot of what we're trying to untangle in psychotherapy and in and spiritual is stuff we've we've constructed in the first place. And so from a Taoist point of view is don't take the first step. <laughs> you know? Totally. And so of course it's very hard to do. You gotta get quite sophisticated. You have to work with those constructs to get sophisticated enough. But for example, and you're right, Lucas, so we're going to blow your mind here. Like a Chan Buddhist, when we say go inside, right? A Chan Buddhist, there's nothing there. If you say go inside, what's in there? Well, there's energy and there's blood flowing and there's a spleen and stuff. Like this whole notion, go inside, it's like a complete construct already. And then all of psychotherapy has to do with, with working with what's inside. And, the, and, and if you, when you truly individuate, you, 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 those are no longer there. You're liberated from the structures that you're trying to work with that are it's self-defeating. And so, like, a lot of my students are um, teachers, and I'm like, never yell at a student about their ego. Because if you, if you want to dissolve the ego, don't, don't keep telling them that's their ego talking. It means you, you know, it's like these things are kind of, they're kind of crazy when you think about it, like how silly, how silly they are. And um, uh, I once was was coaching a teacher who was coaching a student and the student was at one level. She was in despair because she had thought like you could never get rid of trauma because it's in your body and it's intergenerational. It's been there forever. And the best I can do is, you know, it was way too rarefied. Right. So like, it's like, you know, 7,000 years of past history I have to deal with. And my student was saying, oh, but yes, you can, you can dissolve them. You can liberate them. But she was saying it in this way where I could tell she had made a mistake. And I said, but Anne, they're not even real. Like, so, so it takes a lot of effort to maintain the story, to maintain the psychological structures that then you put effort into liberating yourself from and so when you once and that's a first process but as a teacher the goal is always to show 
the goal is always to teach someone not to put them in there in the first place. Like, and this is something people do in very, let me just make it concrete. Like with horses, you want horses to do dressage. You want them to perform over a hundred miles. You can't run a hundred mile race on a horse and not have them get injured if the horse is nervous, just like a marathon runner, right? But either way, most people train horses. It's like going to the dentist. You go to the dentist, yes, you like, you know the dentist is doing you a favor. But if you sit there and you do like, you know, body scan, you realize, okay, I, I relax my jaw. Now my toes are curled. Okay, I relax my toes. Now my, sh- you know, the dentist makes you nervous. And so... Most training techniques in horses makes them contract somewhere. It makes them nervous, like they're going to the dentist, which is mm-hmm. in the wrong direction of the goal. And so a lot of this work is how do we start at the point that the Tao is not broken? I want to I work with you from this view that the Tao is not broken, that things are okay, that the universe is so created that we may not know, but there's a reason you're here. Like, like if that's the goal, then the teacher at least should be the goal from day one. Mm -hmm. Or else you're just mucking it up. You know, you're, you're, Adding to the well by pissing in it. Yeah, it underscores the importance of continuing to work on oneself if one is going to engage with other humans and have any hope of being useful to and with them. Um, do you know Jeffrey Martin's work? at all the the finders research project yeah, i read his book his short his little book i don't know if he's got a bigger book now and i've seen him present at my school non-persistent mm-hmm. uh non-persistent non-symbolic experience yeah yeah I, was... I mean i think he's doing interesting work i think he's measuring something um mm-hmm. uh i think he's a really smart entrepreneur um yeah, I, uh, I, you know, there's a question of whether that, that that in itself is valuable, and he goes and he mm-hmm. goes through that. It's like, does it yeah. make people like have necessarily great lives or happy lives, or they don't necessarily fit in society? He does go into that. So I think this notion of, I'm glad he called it something very specific, sp- persistent non-symbolic experience. Um, uh, yeah, so some people have that through it's very hard in some of these these categories of liberation, let's say, to distinguish mm-hmm. them from pathologies, you know? Mm-hmm. Um it's it's as my friend would say, what's really probably more useful is to have choice. Mm-hmm. Right? So um but I've known teachers that are in those higher categories, and one of my best friends, he's and they're the Taoists. Um, mm-hmm. And I was had a retreat once, and there's an interesting dynamic between my friend, who was he's was quite old already then, and the teacher and this 
one woman was taking my course and I, I was doing the Magellan courses, the, uh, and there was a lot of shadow kind of talk around that course. And so this friend of mine shows up and he, like a lot of Taoists, he presents as an asshole. A lot of Taoists become like, you know, what persona am I going to have? And they just default to like some kind of crazy whatever. So, and so They read too much Schwanza. Yeah, something. And so she was sure that he had shadow. Like she kept on mm. trying and he'd say, ah, you know, I was nine years old and I realized my father this and my mother that and they no longer interested me. And of course it sounds like, it sounds like someone who's, totally repressing something. And I said to her, I said, mm-hmm. don't go there. Two and a half years I went <laughs> with this teacher. And all that shit right. did was bounce on me and it made me suffer right. until I realized, yeah. duh. Like, literally, there's like, he wasn't holding any of that stuff. All that stuff was mine. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, the reason I was asking about... Um, Martin's work is just as you were speaking to this sense of okayness, right? And this kind of his uh, public terminology for it is fundamental well-being, right? And it just reminded me a little bit about some of that. I think at the, um, you know, he he with this idea of different locations, like, you know, I can take that or leave that. But I do think that there is definitely something to be said for making this shift between, um, you know, the assumption that things are not okay right there's this fundamental sense of discontent right or what uh craig hamilton often calls existential tension right and being able to just be like okay right i don't and this loops back into when we were talking about creating these kinds of things that then we have to undo and of course the best step would be to never create them but most of us at least most of the folks that i've encountered are coming to the understanding that we have these kinds of um, dynamics within our own consciousness to work with after they've already been created, right? And so there there definitely seems to be, uh, at least in my experience and observation, some utility in being able to make this shift from like, there's a problem to like, no, there, there's not mm-hmm. a problem. Like there are all kinds of things are happening, arising, unfolding, but none of them are problems, even if some of them are uncomfortable. Um, so I, in in that regard, I think that his work is really interesting in terms of, you know, the kind of uh, methodology that he has used his entrepreneurship to disseminate, right? That seems to be really effective in at least helping a, a fairly high percentage of people let go of the idea that everything is fundamentally problematic. Um, so that's that's kind of, you know, what I really like about his work. Yeah, and I think using your expansion and contraction metaphor that even if let's say we 100% believe the model of the highest level of persistent non-symbolic experience, um, it's people will contract their workspace around a story or a theory or an axiom or a goal. And whether they, Mm -hmm. you know, if they're aware of that, then it can still qualify as, ultimately persistently non-symbolic but it's Mm -hmm. kind of like playing a sport and when you're playing the sport everything is the rules of the game but then you go home you're like oh well you know it's it's only baseball right 
Um, So there's a sense in which I think, uh, and I could be wrong, but the notion of persistent is interesting. It's like in the background, you can know you've contracted your workspace. You've contracted, Mm -hmm. you want to, you want to play this game. So let me carve out this workspace, this ideation space. And you hold it differently and it, and it doesn't work on you the same way because you come from this other place. But I don't think mm-hmm. that at any given time, there's not that. Yeah, unless, I, I unless totally you're agree. Unless truly pathological, like the syndrome Shinjin Young talks about, where you're, you can't boot up your sense of self, so you're drowning. You're like, I know I'm drowning. And that would be... You don't contract your workspace into I'm a person, I want to live, right. I have to, you know. Right. And so, uh, yeah. So I don't think the ability to do that, nor the desire, even if it's just because it's fun or you have to do some with totally. your energy, goes away. But it can right. come from ideally a completely non-symbolic. I, it's, you know, questionable whether. Right. And this is one of, one of the things that, I have been running into lately in certain conversations is folks talking about, um, you know, a loss of agency or volition and um, that there's, you know, this kind of like no doer, no choice making. And, you know, like, right, but you're talking, you have a job, you are eating, you're not getting hit by a car when you cross the street. So like, I am in no way presuming to tell anyone what their experience is like right but it's from a phenomenological viewpoint it seems fundamentally inaccurate to say there is no choice happening and that um any choice is inherently coming from this kind of narrative self-identification or ego construct because if you don't perceive that but still life goes on, some process is making choices, whether you're identified with it or not, whether you experience it as a self or not, you know, unless you're just sitting drooling on yourself, right? And not like eating or breathing or using the bathroom, like there's choice happening. Whether it feels like there's choice yeah. happening or not, it it is arising, right? So like, this is another thing about some of those dynamics, which I think is really fascinating, where... Um, the the simultaneous rigidity of an orientation um and you know in the service of leaning into allowing things to unfold to surrendering to a process that at the same time feels very at least in my experience of it feels very constrained right it's and so again you know i mean nothing is either or but it's just a fascinating um pattern of phenomenon that seem to arise in a certain part of that inquiry space. Yeah, and it's linguistic confusion, you know? So, for example, um, give you a concrete example, and then we'll go back to this. There there are people who retire, and they say, I never work anymore. And they garden, and they cook for their friends, and they do this. And so that's just a linguistic confusion, right? Because work means it sucks, it's a bullshit job, you get yelled at, and you make money. Right. So um, and there's something happening like that with this choice, non-choice. Right. So you're still choice making choices. You still have energy that's motivated. There's still internal motivation. There's intrinsic will. But you realize that a lot of this stuff is boots up, boots itself up. And it always has. Mm -hmm. 
but mm-hmm. you felt that you were a choice because you were actually fighting it and making it an obstacle. This is the same, you, you know, the potential states theory. How much potential is always arising? Why would you, you know, you, we spend too much energy in competition with this energy for free, let's say. And so uh, it's the same thing someone said to me the other day. But we're so lonely. We we just want to... The point is, isn't the point to try to be in relationship with people? And I'm like, it's the opposite. You can't get out of relationship with anything. The truth of the matter is, All your energy is pushing away because you want to be in relationship with people who are just like you, right? It's a fact of reality that everything is always falling. I mean, the insects and the fucking viruses and the people and the kids. and You can't stop the world and get off. This is energy for free. That's not, you don't have to work at that. What you're saying is, I only want to be in relationship with people that just like me. Now, okay, right. well, that's some work. That, that takes, takes work. work. <laughs> you could go to your guru and work on that. But you don't have to go to your guru to be in relationship. This is another linguistic confusion. Right. Okay. Wow. So, yeah, awesome conversation. I was just about to say we're – in terms of time, we're, we're like in a landing space here. So are there thoughts, questions, places you want to encourage people to go if they want to check out your work, anything you want to bring, bring into this before we, we call it? I, I just want to say that as I started at the beginning, noticing that um, this level of conversation is now um, – finding a place in a space and I don't, you know, you can't go just anywhere and, and re-examine some of these interests that we have from square one, you know, it's too taboo or you sound like you're too whatever. And I think that opening the space, I think the natural alignment here is Taoism, but Taoism's not really a thing either. You know, it's more of a orientation, a, um, with life yeah. and a certain kind of confidence about life. And uh, yeah, that's a good message to be broadcasting. So thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming and talking with us. It's like, it's been a total joy and I'm incredibly grateful to have the opportunity. Yeah. So. Thank you so much, Bonnie. It's been our pleasure. Have a great day. Appreciate it. You too. Bye bye.